Hello and welcome to the Airline Business Podcast, discussing key news and trends in the global airline sector. This time, it's an end of year special as we look back at the game of two halves that was 2022 through some of the airline stories that have caught our eye. My name's Graham Dunn and joining me for the last time this year at least is Airline Business Editor Lewis Harper. Hi Graham, how are you? Yes, very good, very good. We've uh, a year uh, back doing the podcast and we've uh, smoothed our introductory moments there to get them spot on. Yeah, um, I think there's only about yeah four or five different takes that you need to mash together to get that. To... It should be the easiest bit to do, shouldn't it? But there you mm. go. Yes, here we are. We've got through to the end of the year, and it, and I sort of describe it as a game of two halves because it, you know, the year ends for all the slightly bleak uh, economic news and the headwinds that are out there. It, it ends in sort of much more positive fashion. It does. Yeah, we've talked a lot in the past couple of pods about a really strong third quarter earnings season. I think for uh, a lot of airlines, so North America was already sort of ahead of the game a bit in the recovery, but that's really spread to Europe in the second half and also obviously Asia, which has been lagging uh, because COVID restrictions haven't been dropped as quickly. We're even seeing you know, some signs of, of China obviously relaxing its policies. And given the size of that market, that, that's obviously something to look out for in 2023. As you say, it very much a year or two halves. So we spent quite a lot of time in the in the nerve centre of the airline business newsroom trying to come up with a structure or cleverly formulate how we should sort of try to unpick the last year. And in the end, we've just decided we're going to talk about some of the stories that kind of caught our eye, for want of a better way, mm. better way of uh, putting it. And I guess, you know, one of the more interesting stories to our mind is KLM, isn't it? Yeah, when you, when you think about airlines that kind of are at the centre of some of the biggest trends in the the industry, if not, you know, they might not be making all the headlines all the time. But, you know, KLM stand out, I think, for probably two or three reasons, really. One on the, as ever with them, on the sustainability side of things and um, some challenges there. Um, you know, we've always been used to them being kind of on the front foot in that regard, but um, it almost feels like that's coming back to bite them slightly um, or has done over the past few months. On the operational side of things, they're also being at the, the centre of some of those challenges. And another issue on the diversity um, in, in the C-suite, obviously they're one of several airlines this year that have appointed a, a female CEO, and that's a, an encouraging trend we've seen over the past 12 months. Yeah, and certainly on that trend of bringing in female talent within the C-suite of uh, airline leadership teams, we are seeing some progress on that across the year, aren't we? Yeah, so on that one, we've, we we do an annual survey and that will be coming out um, in, in the, the next issue of Airline Business in early next year. The trend, obviously, the overall numbers are still quite low in the C-suite, but for the chief executive role, I think, across the top 100 airlines and groups, it's looking to be that around 10% of those will, will have a female CEO, which, you know, given there was a, you know, two or three years ago I did the survey and there's only two airlines in the top 100 had a female yes. CEO. Um, yeah, that 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 does mark progress, it, albeit, yeah, there's clearly a long way to go. So notably, uh, Pegasus, El Al, Austrian and others have, have appointed uh, women to that top role over the past 12 months. So that that's a, a positive trend of, of which KLM has been part as you mentioned, the, those other areas around, and the two of them are almost tied together around the operational challenges and sustainability issues. They both came to a head at KLM's main base uh, uh, in Amsterdam this year. They did, yeah. So the, the main issue they have is is the government proposing a, a cap on the number of flights from uh, Schiphol. So KLM were pretty firm saying, you know, this is a threat to our, our hub model. You know, it's, it's a cap that takes out tens of thousands of flights a year in 
in theory if, it, if it's um, implemented. So yeah, that is a challenge for the airline and, a, and an early challenge for Marjan uh, Rintel in the, as, as the CEO. Um, as we're saying, you know, KLM almost ironically has, has been an airline that you'd often look to to be a, a leader in sustainability. And there's perhaps a, a painful lesson there in the sense that, you know, they're an airline that's facing quite an unusual move from their, their own governments, you know, sort of looking at issues such as noise, Noise pollution has always been a big issue around um, Amsterdam's airports, um, but also with an eye on the the sustainability argument as well in terms of emissions. If it happens, you know, KLM's looking at uh, a ceiling on the number of flights from that, as you say, their key hub. And it probably illustrates, you know, the problem which, you know, for many other airlines is that, you know, it is really difficult, you know, even those airlines that, that might be doing or might be seen as leaders in, in that field, it's, it's very difficult for them to move fast enough on this issue what you tend to see is that the the airlines who have made progress on sustainability really kind of put that at the heart of measure are generally operating in areas and countries and markets where sustainability is already a a really big political factor so very little is going to change for airlines in them winning that sustainability battle the argument around it over these next couple of years, they are going to continue to have to really stress the points of what they're doing. And, you know, I'm sure there will be other countries and other parts of the world where airlines will face further challenges, whether that be punitive taxes, whether that be capping departures, whether that is around other other mechanisms, you know, somewhere between the stick and the carrot in trying to get airlines to be even greener than they are today. Yeah, yeah, it's still um, obviously very early days in, in governments, you know, the, the, the concept of governments capping aviation, as you say, the industry is well aware that if it doesn't enough, that's that's a big risk. And this is, a, as I said, a very early example of that essentially happening. We also had on a, probably a smaller scale, we had Air France, um, the government there um, stopping some of the short domestic flights where it's possible to travel um, on rail. As you say, it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing, really. I guess part of the reason KLM has been so big on it is that they, they are from a country where it's um, you know more widely recognised as an issue, whereas you look elsewhere and, and very often, you know, the, the, there is a correlation between how much awareness there is in, in society of these issues and, and pressure to act on them and, and what the airlines are doing. Now, another of the stories that kind of caught my eye, and it always catches my eye, uh, I've been covering this part of the world for uh, for many years, but is is uh, ETA Airways, as we discovered, they were pronounced uh, halfway through the year, the Alitalia successor carrier in Italy. And they've been interesting in terms of, you know, not only, you know, how do you build a startup, a uh, new carrier. You know, they obviously began with the various assets from Alitalia. They've been in the process of refleeting. I think uh, you were the chief executive earlier in the year at Farnborough when they had their, their first Airbus A350 joining the fleet, about to take, I think, uh, A320neos, the first ones of those. So, you know, you on the one hand, you have this new operation, new kind of fleet trying to change the dynamic and on the other, you have a very familiar story, which has been, you know, Italy trying to secure an investor for the airline. It's a familiar story, isn't it? Very much so. And here, obviously, that's rumbled on for most of the year, continues to rumble, <laughs> rumble on even as we close. Yeah, Lufthansa now, judging by various reports, seems to be the prime airline that the Italian authorities are talking to. It was the consortium which involved Air France, KLM. 
and in fact Delta Airlines, which was led by a private equity firm. So they were in the box seat and actually had exclusive talks, but those expired in October. It sort of had everything because it had the the whole political dimension because you had change in government in Italy, you had a boardroom battle, it, appear, it appears, it had a change in the president. And at the heart of it is this idea that the Italian market remains, you know, for all the challenges that Alitalia had and various airlines have, have had a go at trying to revive that airline. Italy remains, you know, a hugely attractive market for airlines and it doesn't struggle to find uh, people who seem to be interested in, in finding a strategic partnership with them. They keep trying, don't they? I mean, yeah, we... Well, I'm listening to Ben Smith when he um back bef- just before that deadline passed for the the Air France Kerlin consortium. I think he he made the comment the Italian market has always been difficult. <laughs> and I think um, <laughs> it's a bit of an understatement there as as you were as you were alluding to, I think. So yeah, that that it's um an interesting one to watch. Will we finally get some um, obviously the the history there, including the involvement of Etihad and things like that, make it incredibly interesting market, probably for the wrong reasons a lot of the time. And you've you've I know written plenty of copy on uh, on the goings on. But yeah, it, it could be that this could could finally be the moment, but no one's um holding their breath on that, I think. Yeah, political change is an interesting one because yeah, we can't say anything from the UK at the moment, but certainly the potential for change there could you know derail it, as you say, again. But uh, unions obviously have been a big factor in, in challenges there before. So yeah, there, there's all sorts that could happen. But but you know, the, the Italian market is absolutely crucial for several carriers, and um, that's why there's there's such high interest there. And um, yeah, well, 2023 maybe. No, 2023. And that could also be the year for more signs of consolidation in Europe. TAP Portugal is obviously one that might come up on the block. And I think Air France KLM were among the carriers showing some interest in the Portuguese airline. Yeah, that's right. So that's another you know, airline that, you know, it's not, not a new thing for, you know, kind of a second tier national carrier in Europe that isn't part of one of the big groups. So inevitably there's talk there and, and TAP themselves, um, you know, kind of welcome that interest a couple of months ago. So, so yeah, we wanted to, to, to keep an eye on, obviously the pandemic meant the government's now the hundred percent owner of, of TAP. So they're in theory anyway, keen to get, get it off their books. So yeah, it would clearly make a lot of sense there for TAP, particularly of its strong connections to Latin America. It's a, it certainly would be an interest, I think an asset for some of the groups there. So yeah, another one to keep an eye on along with, of course, Air Europa with IAG, which, you know, IAG hasn't made any secret of the fact it wants to take control there. And obviously there have been challenges around that in the past. But certainly, yeah, the next year could bring about consolidation um, involving the, the big groups. And that's before you think about the low-cost carriers. And I don't want to start any rumours about EasyJet again by, <laughs> uh, by saying too much there, because I'm not sure that last round of rumours was really based on anything concrete. But certainly um, Europe is a, is a place to watch for consolidation. I guess the other story in Europe, which I think has caught our eye this year, and perhaps as an airline that may be being written off, is Norwegian. Yeah, not entirely, obviously, um, irrelevant to that consolidation argument. I remember talking to Willie Walsh uh, when IEG were interested in the, the the old Norwegian, as it were, and, you know, that deal was sort of in the offing for a while. But, yes, interesting story that it, obviously um, 
going into the pandemic, they're already restructuring and um, talking about focus on, I guess, quality over quantity. I think they've grown very quickly and obviously into long haul markets. You know, a lot of changes at, at the top over a short period. Um, last year, CFO you know, Gear Carlson took over as CEO. And obviously now Norwegians emerging from the pandemic and, as I say, a, a kind of transformation process that had already been started as a you know, short haul carrier, um, you know, focused on its kind of core Scandinavian markets. And, you know, the indications are they're doing pretty well. Carlson's pretty highly thought of, I think, in the industry. And yeah, he seems to be doing a, an interesting job there. You know, not not easy being that kind of you know, low-cost carrier in a, in Europe with such you know strong competition from the three big operators in that in that space. But certainly encouraging signs, decent financials seems to have a sensible head around. Norwegians looking into winter and it's kind of part of the strategy now to you know structurally reduce capacity and. And that also applies to having flexibility in, in workforce costs as well, not just on the fleet side of things. Um, they're kind of you know, ramping up towards you know, 70, 80 aircraft next year. They place an order to buy their own max jets. Um, at the moment, there's a leased fleet. So interesting there. Of course, I think Carson's talked about the kind of 90, 80, 90 aircraft they start to get into and really get the economies of scale needed for that sustainability. I guess it'll be interesting to see where they go beyond that. And <laughs> I don't know if the temptation will come back to buy some 787s or whatever, but, but certainly um, no indications they'll, they'll go too crazy at the moment. And I think it, you know, it is interesting the, you know, that transatlantic long haul part. Obviously, they withdrew from that market in amongst their major restructuring and about that main focus. But you know, the legacy of what they did there remains. You know, and, and we've seen we've seen it with the legacy of of another carrier in that sector, Wowware, which fell by the wayside. But we've seen a successor in that market, and there's no question that at least part of that mo- that model, whether that is the premium economy mark or leisure premium market that people are interested in or the ability to operate narrow body uh, long haul narrow body aircraft you know especially flights from points in europe to the east coast in um, the us you you're seeing that reflected in lots of other elements there and you know sas such as has just announced plans to to serve newark from um, regional points in uh, denmark and Sweden, which is, you know, it definitely feels like it's part of, of some of the ground that Norwegian made happen, I guess. It's, it's always difficult in Norwegian. Like you say, they, they really did shake up that market without necessarily, you know, as ever, without conclusively proving that the the, uh, the low-cost long-haul on, on transatlantic is kind of viable in the, in the long term. But, yeah, there are people, you know, we've got North Atlantic who, you know, obviously have strong connections with former Norwegian um, staffers there. They're, they're attempting to, to do some of that again with 787s that were previously in, in Norwegian's hands. So people will keep trying um, <laughs> and uh, and we can keep writing features about whether or not the uh, the low cost long haul uh, concept is doomed or, or, or not. So <laughs> doomed revived. We're on a constant cycle of it. When we look across the Atlantic in the US, I mean, it is difficult to see for sheer scale of ambition last year. It is difficult to see past United Airlines at the moment, isn't it? It is, yeah. I think um, I'm going to borrow your phrase, which I've actually forgotten now. How is it you described? <laughs> Statement of intent. Yeah, Statement of intent, that's the one. Yeah, Scott Kirby, obviously CEO at United, seems to be fond of them. I don't know that's um, – I'm not suggesting there's there's clearly substance behind it as well, but if you're going to pick out any um, 
US airline over the past 12 months that, that has made those statements of intent, I think, in, in interesting ways as well. I think United you know, really do do stand out. So I think, you know, just a couple of weeks back, there was a another bumper order, you know, for 100 wide body jets. And that reflects, you know, United is a, is a particularly big player in international sort of long haul sector, uh, kind of leading in the US on the, in, in that regard. And clearly a lot of those aircraft are for replacement, but but it's also talking about proportion being, you know, about growth. And yeah, so there are big orders, you know, big events to announce these orders. They're big on sustainability. At the same time, this they've got a kind of tentative commitment for the supersonic aircraft, which is... Um, you know, in in some respects, slightly contradictory, but <laughs> so yeah, United have been anything but boring this year. I think you you the U.S. market, you know, is is quite obviously consolidated and in some ways, particularly in that that area and um, the the kind of hubs and the who's got what are established to an extent. But Kirby's doing it, having a good go at keeping it interesting. I think there definitely. As you say, it's you know a highly consolidated market. It obviously could have been, <laughs> could be even more consolidated with probably the other major US story of the year, which was around the pursuit of Spirit Airlines, which ultimately JetBlue came out on top of. Yeah, a story where you know we we've again thinking about of our coverage of this. I mean, you go from writing a, a story about why it makes perfect sense that Spirit and Frontier would be um would merge to writing one about how JetBlue thinks is going to make a success of absorbing spirit. So, yeah, JetBlue's kind of, again, talking about airlines that were interesting last year, certainly in the past 12 months, sorry. It's um, definitely there at the centre, as you say, of that fight for spirit where it looked a done deal that Frontier were the, were the winners, but JetBlue wouldn't let it go. And, um, yeah, kept upping their bid to the point where that kind of got over, got over the line. Well, not, not fully over the line yet, but, um, but certainly looks like that's going to happen. Interesting in many ways, you know, the most obvious one being that Spirit and JetBlue do not share the same business model, really. I mean, you're probably arguably both within the low-cost sector, although JetBlue's kind of closer to the sort of hybrid market, really. I think Spirit is essentially going to become JetBlue. Obviously, from JetBlue's point of view, it gives them um, a much bigger footprint, you know, in terms of fleet and network and a chance to expand in a way that um, would be difficult much more difficult organically so interesting to watch and obviously at the same time leaves frontier as kind of uh opens up a bit more of that ultra low cost mm. market of spirit is um is going to kind of be jet blueified as it were so interesting development there for jet blue and at the same time of course jet blue is working um much more closely with american at the moment yes so working through on the northeast alliance really focusing cooperation around new york and, it, and you know this this is an alliance which has been working its way through the regulatory process playing on it, it brings together you know it, i think to some extent it shows that kind of slightly opportunistic or market-based approach that airlines are increasingly looking to in terms of their partnerships i mean the the airlines still remain, you know, active parts of alliances. In fact, we're seeing Virgin Atlantic joining SkyTeam early this year. We've, we've actually had probably more airlines joining OneWorld than we've had for, for some time. But, you know, so those alliances still have a role. But, you know, we've seen for a long time, you know, a lot of interest around joint venture arrangements and really zoning in on particular markets where it makes sense. I mean, JetBlue continues to have separate operations from, from American. And, you know, ironically, JetBlue 
also retracing those Norwegian steps somewhat in terms of having, you know, taken advantage of having its new long-haul narrow-body aircraft to operate across the transatlantic. And, you know, again, it's quite interesting there that those first routes that it started, Boston uh, and New York to London, Gatwick, and then, you know, it's it's got plans to start Paris, Charles de Gaulle routes, their flights that, um, that Norwegian formerly served. So you're seeing a lot of strands coming full circle on this. Yeah, and of course, coming back to the... Um on the subject of JetBlue and uh, the issue of diversity, of course, JetBlue is uh, one of the strongest records on that as well. Um, another reason that they've stood out for me over the past 12 months. Um, certainly at the C-suite, they've got uh, a number of women in, in senior roles there, including Joanne Garrity, who's president and chief operating officer. I think most people would say she's the most senior woman in um the US airline industry there. Um, Robin Hayes, who's the, the CEO, has just had a two-year contract extension, so showing a commitment to the airline there. So yeah, and it, again, another interesting airline and, and one which is ticking the right boxes when it comes to diversity. So we've looked at European carriers and North American carriers. After the break, we'll um, look at some of the other carriers that caught our eye. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not sign up for our free weekly airline business briefing delivered directly to your inbox every Thursday. You can register to get our weekly briefings together with any of Flight Global's other newsletters for free at flightglobal.com forward slash newsletter. Okay, welcome back. Um, Before the break, we were talking about uh, North American carriers, the Cordurai, and there is definitely an airline in Latin America, which has been really interesting this year, Lewis. Yeah, so um, Avianca, which um, the, the Colombian carrier, kind of, um, first of all, was was going through a, a transformation on it in its own terms, in terms of um, shifting you know, more towards point-to-point services. So, you know, away from um, the kind of more traditional kind of hub sort of legacy carrier approach. So that was going on, but obviously at the same time now it, it's working towards um with major partner um Goal, the, the Brazilian low cost carrier, working towards um coming together under a holding company known as um known as Abra, which is curiously um registered in the UK, I think. So an example of consolidation, but a merger not in the kind of the mould of uh, you know two airlines, you know, completely joining forces, but more on the the kind of IAG style approach of um having this Abra holding company underneath, having the separate units, yeah, you know, with their own brands, but also trying to leverage some of the some of the um the, the economies of scale that come from being working together in a group and also the, the network options and things. So if it happens, I think there's still regulatory hurdles to, to overcome there. But but interesting for, for many reasons. One, the Latin America region is is it's the talk to any CEO there and it's always talk about how fragmented it is um, on, on many levels, you know, regulatory um, being one that's um, particularly uh, um, annoying, I think, in, in that area. So uh, it'd be an interesting one if it gets over the line. I think it, it would show a level of maturity in that market and and certainly a, a, another test of that kind of holding company model that that is being talked of as an option elsewhere. If you look to Africa, for example, where Kenya Airways and SAA, I think, want to work together, but with a kind of similar concept. So, yeah, it's it's, it's one to look out for. I think um, what's interesting about it is that obviously um, the consolidation in the uh, Latin American region um, has come a lot under the kind of Latin Airlines brand there, which is at the moment by far the, the largest group, even, you know, given, um, you know, all the, the Chapter 11 and everything that, that LATAM and Avianca have been through alongside Aeromexico over the last uh, couple of years. Um, 
you know, LATAM Airlines Group as a standalone is still by far the biggest the operator. But if Abra happens and it combines Avianca, Gol, potentially the, the Viva airline um, carriers, but um, they're still uh, appealing um, the Colombian regulators' rejection of their um, merger proposal there. The Sky Airline as well is is potentially going to be involved, the, the Chilean low-cost carrier in, in Abra. So if you combine all them together, you suddenly get a, a group of airlines that is essentially, by a lot of measures, on a par with LATAM Airlines Group in terms of size. But certainly, yeah, a, a one to look out for a lot, as I say, a lot of hurdles to get over there. Yes, as you say, that holding structure, we are seeing you know, an increasing number of places. In fact, that's the structure that AirAsia is is using in its sort of grouping together of various airline units within what's now part of Capital A, Tony Fernandez, headed aviation group from Malaysia, which is a unit across the region, uh, but is now also sort of bringing all those together with medium haul carrier AirAsia X, uh, but again, retaining all their separate brands. Uh, so using that holding sort of structure, you know, AirAsia is an interesting airline within it they uh you know they have continued to, to sort of try their luck in different markets try and establish something asia again also very fragmented from a, a regulatory perspective it's not like um something like easyjet ryanair wants to just operate into in a country it just flies there and develop, develop you know large presence in the in these bases if they want to get involved in the market in asia they, they quite often have to establish a joint venture relationship there and it's quite interesting in the past two, three months, you've seen AirAsia exit the Indian market where it had a um, an investment in uh, AirAsia India, but is now uh, setting out to create a joint venture carrying Cambodia. So, you know, you continue to see the development there. The India part of that is, is all part of that even wider story, which is, of course, around Air India. And I think within Asia, which is obviously in a market which has been very hard hit, which has been slowly opening up from the pandemic over the course of the year, there's some really interesting stories around how some of those long established names are developing and the challenges that they face there. So obviously, on the one hand, with Air India, we're seeing you know a fresh attempt to bring that together. That's under the Tata Sons leadership. So they obviously took control of the airline about a year or so ago under the, under the privatization. And we're now just starting to see the idea of that joined up carrier, which would have not only the, the assets of Air India, and, but also Vistara, which was the airline Tata Group used to operate together with Singapore Airlines. Uh, Singapore Airlines themselves will become a, a minority stakeholder in there. And then you've got what was AirAsia India together with uh, Air India Express operating in that low-cost segment. And so there's a really concerted push to try and recreate some of Air India's former glories. I guess it's been an airline that has really struggled, struggled financially, being the Indian government struggled to to offload it because it's heavy debt levels. And so this is a chance for it to try and reassert itself in a market in which as we've discussed previously, local scary indigo in particular is is well established, and and you know we're expecting a very sizable and noteworthy order from um, Air India next year. I assume, but maybe they'll squeeze it in before the end of this year. Mm-hmm. Who knows? But so we're expecting they're stranger things, but we're certainly expecting that. And so that they're trying to recreate some of that past glories, and then you have you know Singapore Airlines and, and Cathay to really establish. Airlines who had no domestic market to fall back on. So, you know, whilst both very established cargo operators and you were very creative around developing those parts of the market, you know, both of them have 
Singapore and Hong Kong as no domestic market to speak of. So you are looking at how do they establish their business. And and Singapore Airlines has been sort of very aggressive, I guess, you know, and they've actually recovered remarkably quickly, haven't they? Yeah, they're kind of now, yeah, making a virtue of the fact that they were kind of first movers in in the region in, in many ways. I mean, that, that again, is um, so clearly not down to them entirely, although as an airline leader, you need to position the, the business to take advantage of the government, um, you know, allowing travel. But we had vaccinated travel lanes into Singapore, one of the kind of earliest moves to facilitate international travel in the region. And as you say, as a with no, no domestic market, that's a big deal for Singapore Airlines. But they, they've certainly kind of positioned themselves to be the, the airline powering the sector out of, um, the, sorry, the region out of the crisis. And, you know, that, that showed through in their their financials um, for the third quarter of the year where they were unusual really in Asia as a sort of um, also achieving kind of record levels of revenue and operating profit. Um, you know, that was a trend we saw at several airlines in Europe and, and kind of North America, you know, really benefiting from the strong demand and, and high yields. But, you know, Singapore Airlines also got a bit of that action and, and you know, that was unusual in that region. So, yeah, they're, they're positioned to, to bounce back and, uh, yeah, benefiting from government policy. I think the story, when we look at Hong Kong, though, is slightly different, isn't it? Yeah, and, you know, that has been a really challenging year for, for Cathay Pacific. It's been, been a year in which travel has been really restricted, even at the start of the year, even even operating its lucrative cargo operation was made uh, challenging by the uh, the COVID related restrictions. Restrictions we have seen, you know, an easing in that the restrictions are gradually falling away. There was a further uh, lifting in that in the last couple of days. But you know, in December they will still be operating something like a third of the of the passenger capacity that they had pre pandemic. I think at the moment they're they're looking at maybe being back up to 70% at the end of next year. You know, they're looking very much at 2024 before they'll be back at pre-pandemic levels. That's a big gap to make up. And they have a new man in charge. Uh, Ronald Lam is the chief commercial officer. He takes over from Augustus Tang, who uh, steps down at the end of the year. So there's a new chief executive to take that task forward. And clearly, like all carriers in the region, but probably more so than many, you know, what happens in terms of COVID restrictions and the opening up of markets in China is going to be a major factor as well for CAFE. Yeah, CAFE, yeah, very much beholden to to developments in in that regard. Also worth mentioning with CAFE, of course, um, again, in a, a bit of contrast to Singapore Airlines, that going into COVID, it was hardly in a in a good place either because of the um, challenges in, in Hong Kong, the, the protests and the kind of unrest that did affect a demand for travel and um you know, going into the crisis. So it's an airline where, where there's, you know, it's a, a fascinating story to, to watch, but but clearly pretty painful for, for anyone um, directly involved with it. And as you say, I think it's a measure of how tough things have been for Cathay that, you know, reaching, you know, 30, 40% of pre-crisis capacity is is kind of amazing news for them, given the lows they've seen um, over the past couple of years. So Cathay, as you say, China more broadly, um, some signs of a bit more life there in terms of, of airlines, you know, talking about 
ramping up international capacity again. But uh, as we talk now, I know there's, you know, the, the, the kind of relaxations of COVID restrictions within China are, are having an effect on, on hospitalisation levels. And, and um, yeah, there are no guarantees that, that it's going to be a smooth ride to, to something like normality there. So another reason why Cathay is going to be, if it's optimistic, there's going to be a heavy dose of, of caution with, with that as well. Probably if you were looking for, for an airline that contrasted more than Cathay during the pandemic, it's probably Qatar Airways, the airline that was probably most active during the crisis, continued to operate. And, you know, in terms of those big Gulf carriers, you have seen a very active year for Qatar, for Qatar Airways, for, for Emirates. You know, they've been trying, they have been, you know, adding back capacity. We're both now flying uh, A380s Emirates because of its passion <laughs> for flying A380s. Uh, Qatar, uh, probably more to do with its ongoing courtroom battle with, with Airbus over the through 50s, which has, you know, been another lengthy story for the year. Certainly in that, in the Middle East region, Etihad has been an interesting story. We saw a slimmed down, you know, more focused Etihad emerge from the crisis. You know, they, they really did go into the crisis, having had uh, some difficult years after a, a very ambitious expansion strategy and investment strategy that unwound pretty spectacularly. And they've emerged, ironically, they also now, as we discussed, uh, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, bringing back A380s as well. But Etihad emerges as a as a sort of smaller, more focused operator in the Gulf. There are signs, though, that there are ambitions from a neighbouring carrier in the Gulf to um, step up its presence in the in the shape of um, airline strategy in uh, Saudi Arabia. Yeah, and all these kind of things kind of are linked, aren't they? Because you talking about Etihad, of course, that the, you know a lot of people were sceptical that. That the Middle East region really needs, you know, three big hubs. Perhaps Etihad is a is a is a lesson in that. But as you say, in in Saudi Arabia, as part of a much bigger, you know, opening up of, of the country to investment and um, tourism in particular, obviously particularly relevant to the airline side of things. You know, they're they're, they're launching a new flag carrier from to be based from Riyadh. Obviously, Saudia is based in uh, Jeddah. So the big plans to um, and I think, again, when we talk about orders to look out for aircraft orders, I think that's one that um, is going to be on its way soon. Obviously, again, <laughs> overlapping with Etihad, we, um, I'm not sure it's been officially announced, but I think um, it's widely known that Tony Douglas is, has left Etihad now. And is, um, obviously, that's been announced because they've got a new CEO. But, um, but yeah, his, um, his next role is going to be leading that, that new um, flag carrier in Saudi Arabia. Um, so big ambitions there. As I, as I mentioned before, I think... You know, there's, there's partly driven by a big push to attract tourism into, into Saudi Arabia. So obviously um, having uh, the new carrier going into the um, the capital there w- would be crucial in that effort. We've seen Wizz Air already um, moving into that market. Um, that's all part of that kind of you know effort to expand connectivity into Saudi Arabia. So um, investment in obviously infrastructure is a big part of this Saudi effort. And as I say, it, it also extends into much more widely into the aerospace sector and things. So when we talk looking ahead, I think Saudi Arabia is the country to watch. I think the the questions are, you know, um, a big drive for tourism, you know, makes sense. But um, attempting to launch a, a third hub um, carrier in the in the Middle East is certainly not going to be easy. I think it's fair to say. No, absolutely. So, 
there we should probably, with our thoughts already turning to uh, 2023, we should probably leave it for another year. Uh, Lewis, thank you for your time. Thank you, Greg. So that is all we have time for. Uh, You can find links to the stories we've referenced in the podcast notes. And you can keep up to date with all the stories from across the industry at flightglobal.com. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you again in 2023.